who are making sideways shifts toward doing church differently, reimagining church. And some of the writing that I did for the connecting with some people, and my Pope said, please do this workshop next, next harbor. So we put this together. And I'm really thrilled to have found a partner in Todd Vogt, who I think, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit sad that as I talk to people in our fellowship about some of the things that I'm seeing, the, the desires that I would like to have in place, I don't hear people who get it the way that I think I, we ought to get it. But Todd is someone of a kindred spirit who really gets these things. And as we talk today, it will become clear exactly what it is we're talking about. But like, even as I was looking to find people who could point me in the right direction, and to talk to people I thought were experts in doing mission here in the North American context in Church of Christ, they didn't have ideas of who to talk to. <laughs> I had to go outside of our fellowship to connect with people to point me in different directions. And so we're going to be sharing, and I've discovered through Todd, there's people who are doing this stuff. We just have to kind of listen differently and look in, in odd places, look on the margins rather than in the center, because I think that's where we're going to get this coming from. But anyway, I've said enough uh, as we just kind of, we're going to be sharing today some thoughts about why this is important, what this might look like, and some challenges for you to take home with you. First of all, let me introduce myself. I am Jason Locke. I'm the preaching minister at the College Church of Christ in Fresno, here just a few hours north of here. And my, uh, my heart is a, is a missionary. That's really what I think as a missionary. We spent our first, Julie and I, my wife, spent our first years in marriage in the Czech Republic, planting, doing church planting in Prague. We came back to the States. I didn't just want to go into maintenance ministry, so we did campus ministry at a state college campus on the East Coast. And then when we did finally get the call to preaching ministry, I thought it was coming into a certain kind of context, which ended up uh, being a beautiful church, but with some deep challenges that I did not know about when I got there. And so we have worked through a number of these things, and finally, I think some of those things are coming together in a way that I think are absolutely beautiful and shocking to see what's happening in our church right now. But so anyway, but that's me and my story. My wife, Julie, we've been married over 30 years. And we have two kids, uh, oh, there's Julie back there. Two kids who are grown. One who is married and lives five blocks from us in Fresno and another who will be married this fall and works for NASA in DC. So we're, we're you know, very fortunate. And we have two panelists that I invited. This is David Berry. David is a Fresno native who has been in ministry his whole adult life um, in the Fresno area. But, last 25 years or so in Visalia, which is just south of Fresno. And David is an incredibly patient minister who has led his church toward a journey that I would say is an outward journey of trying to become a real missional church. And they're doing some things that are kind of, I think, examples for some of us of what we might do. And to, and to his right is Shalay Wesson, who I'm fortunate to work with at the College Church. She's our family minister. And Shalay came to us not from a Church of Christ background, not from a ministry background, but from working really in nonprofits, where she had been leading what I would say is something very similar to a messy church kind of thing. It's almost like a joy bus situation without the buses. <laughs> and, and so we'll get to hear some of her thinking and, and, and view of things. She and her husband, and by the way, David's married to Sherry. Uh, Shalay's married to Fino. They have three kids together. And uh, let me turn it over to Todd and introduce himself and the panelists he has with him. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. It's good to see you here. I'm glad to have you as part of this conversation. Uh, I'm Todd Vogt. I'm the 
Executive Director of Mission Alive. Uh, Mission Alive was started in 2004 after our founder, Galen Van Rien, had taken a sabbatical from ACU to study the status of mission in the North America Church of Christ, not mission overseas, but how is Churches of Christ doing on God's mission here in North America? And the, essentially the answer that he and his co-author came up with was we weren't. And uh, it was a fairly, um, fairly bleak outlook. And so for a variety of reasons, he took early retirement from ACU, moved to Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, started Mission Alive, and a few years later, uh, I moved there to join him in 2015, became the executive director. But along that way, along that journey, early in my time with Mission Alive, in the 2007 to say 2014 or 15 time frame, uh, we found that we were constantly having to justify why we needed to plant churches. The vast majority of the time, the pushback was, don't we have enough churches? There's a church in every corner. Just go help those revitalize. Uh, with a complete lack of awareness of the resistance that exists in most churches to do the types of revitalization that are necessary to speak to the people in our communities that are done listening. And so church planting then becomes an opportunity to present the gospel in a way that perhaps many people in our communities had not heard. Then something else happened. Uh, we began to pay attention to a lot of people in North American Christianity that are starting new churches, and the vast majority of them are planting churches in relatively wealthy white suburbs. And the reason for that makes perfect sense, because that's where you're going to be able to start a church for it to be financially self-sufficient in some reasonable amount of time. But the fact that we're doing that, and I'm talking about across all denominations, the fact that we're doing that flies right in the face of the heart of God. Jesus did not spend his time with wealthy people of the, you know, the majority trying to support what they're doing. He went to the margins of his own society. And so I was confronted at one point. I was actually on a prayer retreat. And this guy was the recipient of it when I came off that prayer retreat. Uh, and I was confronted by whom I believe was the Holy Spirit that um, we had to reimagine what church planting in North America looked like where we were not constantly, every single project, planting in wealthy white suburbs. And so for the last seven or eight years, we have focused on starting what we call new innovative communities of faith in marginalized communities. So that's what we're about. That's what we, we wake up every morning and get to work on. And i got to tell you, 90% of the time, it's a blast. <laughs> the other 10%, maybe not, but 90% of the time, it's a blast. Let me introduce you guys to uh, the folks that I've invited to join us. This is Charles Kaiser. Some of you uh, heard him speak already. He's got a new book that's out. Can you bring it here? Yeah, that sounds Okay, so if you want one of his new books, um, there's one back there, Trauma-Informed Evangelism. Uh, fantastic, uh, good stuff. He planted uh, the Storyline Christian Community in Dallas, Texas in 2008 and started as a missional community formed church. And if you don't know what that is, I'd love to explain to you or ask him. 
Um, but uh, he's been working in that creative space for a long time. Uh, next to him is, is Sarah and um, Ryan Smith. They, in 2018, they planted in Maumel, Arkansas, a suburb of Little Rock. They planted the Common Thread Church, which in, in and of itself is a bit of a creative church because they are an accidental multi-site, um, largely video-based church. Now, that's kind of a mouthful, and we'll let them talk about it uh, here in a little bit. But again, I, I admire these folks because they are working in this creative space to reimagine what church looks like. So before we hear from our panelists, you and I dialogue just a little bit about what the challenge is. Oh, you want to pass yeah. those around? Yeah. All right. So we thought we ought to uh, pass out some resources. So here's a clipboard that's just got a list of books and websites and podcasts and things like that. If you want to kind of have your your uh, imagination stretched a little bit, here's some resources that various ones of us put together. And we'll just let that come up and down the aisles as we talk. And the other is an information sheet for Mission Alive. If you would like to get information, if you'd like to be on our mailing list, fill this out as it comes by. So one of the things I love about the way we've set this up is Todd and his group are really focused on starting new communities of faith. And where I'm coming from is doing new things from within existing communities of faith. So I think we have both of those types of, of uh, Kind of biases here. Um, but as we put this together, the reason we're really thinking about this is that most of us have only had one pathway for trying to lead non-churchgoers to church. And that has been to try to slowly and carefully get someone to go with us to Sunday morning church. That we think that the really the goal is to lead someone to come to church with us. And sometimes we'll really go out on a limb and get somebody to go with us. And I know you and I were talking about just how, how many people, though, no matter what we do, will never walk in the door of the church. That's just, for one thing, just the beginning point. I mean, what, what do you think percentage-wise people who will never enter the door of a church building for a church service? Uh, at the very, very most optimistic level, 30% of Americans have some kind of connection to an, an established church or established churches. And like I said, that is the most optimistic we can be. Uh, in reality, where less than 15% of Americans can be found in any kind of Christian denomination worship gathering on any given weekend. Uh, and that's down from about 22 or 23% in... 2005, something like that. So if all of our strategies are about how to do Sunday better, how to preach better, how to do worship better, how to have a better coffee bar, how to have a better welcome experience, you're saying 70% will never, ever walk in the door to be blessed by that. So um, what do we do with a situation where we have this current focus and diminishing returns from that. I mean, it seems to me like we need to think about some things differently. Um, what, what, yeah, talk about that. So in, in addition to that, we have, everybody knows in here that COVID has had a massive impact on American Christianity or particularly on Christian practice. Um, 
So in today's world, um, in terms of the sheer number of congregations that have some operation in North America, or in the US, right now, we are at half the level, half the number of congregations that are operating in the US as there was in 2000. Now let that sink in a minute. In the last 23 years, the number of congregations has been cut in half. And on top of that, the number of people in those congregations has shrunk so that last fall, how many of you know the Barna Group? You guys know who the Barna Group is? Okay, it's a kind of a sociological research firm uh, that focuses on American Christianity. Last fall, they recalibrated their descriptors of what constitutes a small, medium, large, and extra-large church so that an extra-large church in today's United States starts at 250 members, which means large churches are below that, medium churches below that, and small churches are below that. And anybody want to take a guess on what percentage of American congregations are considered extra large according to the Barnard Group? Shout it out if you want to take a shot. How much? Five percent. Three percent. Well, you guys are more um, more pessimistic than uh, than I am and than Barnard is, but eight percent. Eight percent of U.S. churches of all Christian denominations are over 250 members. So, so let's be clear uh, before anybody would mistake what we're saying. You and I are not against traditional worship services. Um, I work for a church. We, we try to do our worship service as well as we can. We think that matters to the people who come. It matters to the 15% who are in church on a Sunday. Right? They've chosen to be a part of a worshiping community and, and they need that type of worship gathering. So what you and I are not saying, you're an elder. Right. I'm church. an elder at the Green Oaks Church of Christ in Allen, Texas. Uh, with a couple of my fellow elders back, I don't know, somewhere over here. Um, a couple other fellow elders. Uh, one of the guys on our staff preaches in, for a, the Lee Acres Church in Tupelo, Mississippi. We are not against established churches. We have just come to recognize that we have got to do something very, very different if we're going to get the attention of the 70% of Americans that it doesn't matter what you do, they're not walking into a church building. So does that make sense what we're saying? Everybody kind of with us there. All we're saying is there's going to be, there's not going to be an impact on our broader, on our broader culture unless we do something different, unless we find some new ways of forming Christ-centered communities outside of our traditional worship gatherings. That's all we're saying. Yeah. So let me just ask our panelists if you just have some quick thought um, um, or an example where you've seen kind of this principle at work. Uh, I, so I hear the high level data and so maybe this story will serve as at least part of the, the on-the-ground reality for me as a minister in my own neighborhood. And I'm in, uh, I'm in Dallas, Texas, the belt buckle of the Bible belt, no less. And this is my reality in Dallas. Um, one of many friends, I think about Mark, who, uh, when he was young, 
grew up in a very conservative evangelical family. Uh, his, his family was uh, very, um, very strict, very moral, very selective about what he listened to, what he, what he watched, what he learned. Uh, it, was a, it was a very strong and structured environment. And when Mark came into a teenager realm, turned 16 or 17, he began to ask questions and wonder uh, about a lot of things that didn't make sense to him. And he had a conversation with his father where he said, you know, I'm not sure I believe. I'm not, I'm not sure I believe this. And as he's a, approaching uh, 17 or 18 years old, um, his, his father gets very aggressive and evangelistic, if you will, with him. And it leads to the estrangement of their relationship for almost 20 years. Uh, and, and Mark says, out of that experience of being shunned from my family and, and not having a relationship anymore with my dad, I became a very belligerent atheist. And I did not have nice things to say about Christianity. And I told myself, I will never darken the door of a church building for the rest of my life. Now imagine meeting Mark in your neighborhood and not knowing that story, inviting him to church. What do you think the answer will be, right? Uh, what, what I'm encountering, and Mark is a, he's an emblem, he is representative of so many of my neighbors who have experiences of spiritual abuse and religious trauma who've been deeply harmed in the context of religion, and that is a big part of the reason they'll never come back to a church building or a worship service. It's not the only reason, but it's significant, at least in my mind. Um, actually, I've been a youth minister, counter minister in Fresno. Um, before I came here, um, my husband and I ran an after-school um, program for children in a poverty-stricken, underserved neighborhood. Um, and one of the things that we noticed when we got there was that there had been a program there running um, for the kids in the community for years before we got there, twice a week for years. And they had about four of three to five kids who would show up from that community. And one of the things that we realized is that program was coming from a upper middle class privileged perspective and had certain rules for these kids. When we got there, me and my husband did our best to speak their language. We spoke their language. We knew what they lived like. We knew what home life was like. We leveled with them. And we didn't look down on them for it, we leaned into it. And I think that a lot of our teenagers and youth, because specifically that's where I'm coming from, our teenagers and youth, they have a very individual perspective of where they're coming from and why they don't step foot in the church. And I think we need to lean in to that language. And we need to speak their language. And we need to talk to them on that level. Um, when we did that, we had about Maybe a month or so after we got there, we had about 35 kids, 40 kids, to the point where we had to start turning them away because there wasn't space in the trailer. And we weren't doing church. We were doing church, but we weren't doing church. We were loving them. We were teaching them character traits. We were doing projects. We were eating together. We were building relationships. We were doing church, but we weren't doing church service. 
So there's a there's a, a difference. There, there's something to be said about the language and how you lean into something and what we think we're doing right and how things have to be and imagining things to be different and thinking for the people that you're serving instead of getting them to conform to what you're doing. Our background, I, I did the traditional Sahari youth ministry being a preacher, you know, virtually I thought this was kind of deal for about 20 years. And when we got into church planning, the idea was our passion, we were, even when we were doing preaching and leading the church, uh, we were drawn to people that didn't like the church um, and wouldn't show up. And so you know, we started when playing in church, we wanted to experiment with people, you know, those people, you know, for like people deconstructing their faith, those types of things. People who have gone to church, right, and have left it, they still have some type of faith, but uh, will not get a part of the what the corporate kind of thing is going on, right? And so when we started asking the question, we're like, how do you reach those people if they've been there and done that? And try you know, so, so the way we've done the past is we'll, we'll change how we do worship. Or we'll get a, a cool coffee shop or whatever it might be. And for us, we want to say, well, what, you know, what could we do? You know, because in Maumel, in Little Rock, you know, with those 8%, it seems like every corner we have 8% on our, our streets. But as we started doing our interviews and start, started looking at even in Maumel, it's, it's a very nice area. And you start saying, hey, a lot of people go to church. And then if you ask them, where do you go to church? We don't, right? Because in our area, the Bible Belt, they've been taught what church people look like. So everybody assumes that everybody goes to church. It's easy to hide that they're not going to church. And so we wanted to experiment what, what, what are things we could do that would start to like reach people who've been there, done that, but they, they, want, they still want that spiritual thing. And so we, we went to, we used to be ministers, youth ministers in, in Little Rock at, at a very big church of Christ. <laughs> And we said, hey, we're coming in, we're going to plant a church that's going to be, we don't know what it's going to look like in some ways, we're going to experiment with all kinds of stuff to see what will sit, what will reach. And we met with their elder board there, and I remember this day, like, they were so excited because most of their adult children were not going to church, but they could not support us because we weren't going to be a part of the, the tradition, if you will. And they didn't know where that would take it at that moment in time. And so for us, that's kind of where we don't have the answer for you because we, we can show you our journey in 2018 to now looks, I mean, I don't even know if what we're doing is right or not, but it is those things that we're exploring, being willing to at least ask the question, what, what, what is necessary to be church? And then what's actually going to be necessary to, to touch those hearts. Um, so that's kind of where we have, where we're at now. Thank you. Just real quick for me, you know, I think I always ask the why, well, you know, why do this or why change? And, you know, I do think it goes back to, like, being able to start where people are at and recognizing that there is a bird out there, but that the church is a place for healing. And so the very thing that these that people need, who, who have been hurt and who have been abused and who have experienced spiritual trauma, is the very thing that they're 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 too scared to go. And so what we've got to do is figure out ways where we can continue to bring the church to the people that need the healing of the church. But it's just going to have to look 
very different from the place that they've been hurt. Thank you. So we're a very missional church for the last 20 years. We have developed a very missional attitude that we're out in the community in a lot of different ways. But one of the most successful ones in our Celebrate Recovery ministry the last nine years, and especially the last five years, has been very, literally hundreds of people have, had, have been helped to overcome their health, their hurts, their habits, and their hang-ups. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to come to our church, or that our church is going to grow. There's a lot of different reasons for that. Some of it is you can order community attitudes. Other moment church members are the best local things here. Those people have the problems. Skip, we don't skip have the problems. We have problems. Yeah. We've pretty much conquered that, but we still have the perspective of those who, as they come, they have this attitude, well, we're, we won't get something. Or they look at us and we don't look the way they look over that. And so it's overcoming that perception. A lot of people do. Well, Church people, they, they really don't care about us. Even though we may have helped them through their habit, or hurt, or hang up, whatever it was, they still, they have that perception that if I come there, and that we, we have a big Thanksgiving service that we do every year, and we really have hundreds of people that come, several families came to celebrate recovery. One lady said to me afterwards, I felt like they were looking down on me because I have these six kids, and I'm a single parent. Well, I know no one was looking down on me, that was just her attitude. And so sometimes it's overcoming that attitude. People think, well, the church doesn't really care about me and what my hurts are, what my habits are. And if I can overcome that, so it's an establishment, and I'll talk more about that this afternoon, about how we establish that contact, that Christ is the answer for that, and how you make that contact. Thank you to all of our panelists. Great opening words there. So um, I hope you know that we love the church. I absolutely love the church. And what, what is kind of pushing our hearts forward is we want to extend what we know as a tremendous blessing out into our communities where there are people who will not experience the blessing unless we go to them, unless we bring Christian community into them, to their world. And so, I mean, like, I know we were talking some about what you use the term, Todd, ecclesial minimum. Mm -hmm. That there's a, basically, a lot of, in a lot of ways, we've boiled church down these days just to a very small number of things that we do together. And, it, and it's really, I think you, you said, and I agree with this, it's boring to many church people. Talk about that for a second. I mean, yeah. So, yeah, so the first part of that is... My experience is that, by and large, the vast majority of the people in our congregations are fairly largely bored with their Christian faith. They, they're going through the motions, but they're not, they're, they're, their life is not invigorated by their faith to the point that they can't get enough of this God. They're, they're going through the motions of coming to church, and they're very beautiful, you know, members of the church, and they give their money, and they have very strong opinions about a very few little things. But beyond that, there's really not a lot of deep passion or great vision for what God is wanting to do in the world. It's just somehow missed them. Um, and at the same time, we have these very complex church systems. And so uh, this idea of the ecclesial minimum, uh, this is not unique with an organization called the Tampa Underground, but they're the ones that coined that phrase. If you guys don't know the Tampa Underground, just Google search it. 
Um, we have spent a fair amount of time with them. I think they've done some fantastic thinking and doing some really creative work in Tampa and around the world. Um, when they got started about 15 years ago, they about 50 of them took six months and went to um, Manila, Philippines. And they were grappling with how, if we're going to go back to the States and start something that's going to be, be vibrant and active in the city of Tampa, Florida, what are we going to do? And what they were grappling with is they were relatively young, just post-college, five, six, seven, eight, nine years, something like that, not, not super wealthy people. And they, the question that they found themselves asking was, well, what can we take away from the current system and still have church? What could we get rid of? Like, could we get rid of our Bible classes? Does that still, is, does that still constitute church? if you don't have a Bible class on Sunday mornings, right? What else can we take away? And so the idea of this ecclesial minimum was when you strip everything away in their mind, and like I said, they're not the only ones that have come up with this, uh, their three points that they feel you have to have to still be, to still constitute church is worship, community, and mission. Okay, so worship, community, mission. If you take away any one of those, you're not really church in the New Testament sense of the word. Um, and then they, they take that a, a step further, and that is to say, um, in our current North American Christian environment, if you think of those three as a Venn diagram, three overlapping circles, right? In the vast majority of our churches, the worship circle would be by far the largest, but the community circle would be substantial, and the mission circle would barely be a pinpoint. And that's not, I don't think that's overly negative. I think that's a fair and accurate representation of what we find in most North American churches. And what the, the point they make is, well, what if we start with mission and grow that and then add into it worship and community, or let community grow as mission grows and then add worship in at the right time. It's a completely different way of thinking about doing church, but that has been inspirational for Mission Alive. So what we're saying, we're gonna start moving into some examples here, is that we tend to have a church-shaped mission rather than, in the words of the Anglicans, a mission-shaped church. In other words, we do mission based on what we know how to do. And what we know how to do is Sunday morning church. That's what we put 95% of our resources into. We expect people to show up, be entertained, love it, and go home. And then do whatever, uh, you know, Christian life on their own. You guys may remember back in the 90s, the United Methodist Church had a marketing campaign. Does anybody remember this? There were billboards, there were TV commercials. I even saw people with yard signs. And the statement that they were using, and it was really quite a good statement for a marketing statement, was open hearts, open mind, open doors. But that statement that they were pushing over the airways, that says a lot about their understanding of God's mission because that says that to participate you have to come through our, now our doors are open, but you've got to cross whatever that threshold is to come to us, rather than us stepping out and being incarnational 
crossing the barrier ourselves in order to come to you. And so most of our mission strategies, most of our renewal strategies, strategies center around how can we do Sunday morning church better. Like I just got an email yesterday. If you will install an LED wall on an auditorium of your church, that will be the key to get people to come and stay. There's hundreds of those kinds of ideas. And so what we want to explore together now is the need for new expressions of Christian community. Instead of come to us strategies, how do we create go to them strategies? I mean, just, I want you to picture like uh, missionaries in Kenya in the 1980s who would go and they would go to the villages and meet the village leaders and meet the people from the village. They would sit and have tea. They would talk. They would get to know the stories of people. And then, do you think they would invite them back to their compound to do church with them? No. They would try to start a community of Christ followers there in that village. Why can't we in North America have a similar strategy with the communities around us? So rather than thinking of, of this as we have to attract them to us, how do we go to them? So we're going to think about that together here for a little bit. Um, anything before we pitch it to the panel? Yeah, part of, part of the challenge of this is to let go of our either or thinking. We tend to think of church in either or, either I'm right or you're right in how we do church or what I think about church or whatever. Instead of thinking about an old way of doing church and we should change and do the new way, this is not either or, this is adding to what church is as it resonates with a certain percentage of the population, adding new forms of church that will resonate with other parts of the population that won't darken the door. So we've got to let go of that either or thinking. And a lot of times the people who are going to lead in this in our churches, existing churches, are the people who are already on the fringes because they're frustrated. They're frustrated with church as it is. They know it's not being effective. They know we're not reaching people. They are frustrated. And so to give them freedom to pursue some new ways might really be life-giving to a lot of people in your church. And so we're fortunate to have these panelists who have some experience doing this kind of thing. So share with your own stories, ways of doing new forms of Christian community. I don't know who wants to begin, but uh, pass this one. One of the things that I love, and it happens more often than I can count anymore, is I'll get a phone call on my cell phone or some of the church to say, is that the place And that's how we become the only community. That's the place that tells people. Now, they're not talking about food. That's what we always it's because we have to celebrate recovery, we have a counseling ministry, we have these ministries that are out in the community helping people. And they don't come, to, they're, they're coming to us because they're hurt, because they've got this problem going on, or their child has this problem going on, and they come to us. Now all of our programs are Christ-centered and lead people to Christ. We don't hide that at all, but that's where people come. That's that first contact is, this is how we make contact, is we deal with their hurts. What is, where are you hurting? Where is your pain at? It may be addiction, it may be codependency, as I was telling Jason, codependency is one of the largest groups that we work with right now. Uh, pornography addiction is another large group we work with. So it's, people think it's just alcohol or drug addiction. That is a big component, but it's not the one only component we work with. And we help people through that. And 
as a young man, he came in recently. Uh, you know, he's to become pretty close to Sherry and I recently. And he just, he came to my office, I heard a couple years ago, and he was just in tears. And he said, my life's falling apart, can you help me please? And that's what we've been doing. And so it's, that's how you're able to get into communities, helping people at their hurts. Where is it hurt? Where, where is it struggle at? And identifying that struggle and then leading them to the ultimate person to help with that, Jesus Christ. But first you have to deal with the hurt, the habit, or the hang-up, or whatever it is as we get out in the community. David, you guys have the largest celebrate recovery group in the region around there. In the region, but outside of Saddleback, out here, we're the largest one. In Central, there, Central Valley area. But most of the people attend don't come to church on Sunday morning. Most of them do not. We last week had 195, I would say out of that 195, uh, 30 or 40 are volunteers on the church that run it. And then there's maybe 15, 20 that attend the church. So, so you're basically building. To celebrate recovery as almost a church community Correct. that meets on Friday nights. Yeah, and I'll, I'll talk more about that later. But that is a separate community that we are we are dealing with. It's not about this is going to grow our church. This is about we've got to help with the hurts in the community where they're at. So far in our world, again, trying to so how do recovery reach those that have been at the church world to know how does somebody become a part of the church? And, you know, use the, the kind of formula of believe, behave, belong. Uh, you've heard that. I don't think we're going to do better. Most, a lot of churches, uh, traditional churches, do the believe, behave, belong. That's how you get into it. People have been a part of church, they've experienced that, and they don't know that language, but that's what they've experienced. And so for us in our exploration, what we do, we switch up the words for us, and it's not new. There's a lot of people out there that talk about this now, but we go belong, behave, believe. And so for us, belong took the center of what we started to do in you are a full-fledged member um, when, you, when you're ready to, to say you are. Um, and then so for us, that was a huge component into what did we do next, right? So just two things that we did we want to share with you. And again, we have so much more, but real quickly, uh, Sarah's going to give it to you. Yeah, so one of the ways that we live that out is we invite participation from the beginning. So when you're, you know, immediately, when you come, we, you're, you're equal with me. There's no authority. Um, we invite you to share and just create a space where people can share their experiences, share what they're thinking about, that even a communion thought for somebody that maybe doesn't know what they believe, um, but they talk, they're ready to talk about communion and share that. Um, but creating a space like that where we're all on a level playing field, all there to contribute and share and figure this out together um, is really kind of that one one example of saying, okay, we're going to, we're all, you belong. You don't have to change who you are. You don't have to do anything differently to, to be here and to have a place. And so creating those spaces. Another one is service. Um, you know, and that's a big one, I think, too. Just, and, and a great one that any, any church of any shape and color can do is just to say, okay, there's there's something that someone's connected to in the community or they have a passion for, and that's a service project that we maybe as leadership can go and support them leading out of that service project. We're the supporters, we're not the leaders in that. But being able to identify those things that other people have in them the ability to do and to start from day one that are good things and things that are part of a, a faith community 
that they have something to offer before they really ever even change. Um, I think that's really what what makes uh, maybe a church unique. Um, so like we, so we, we, we joined, uh, uh, we, don't, we didn't create any new ministries. We wanted to join ministries that are already going in our community. So we joined a company that builds beds for kids. And so the first thing we did was advertise to our community, we need people to come and do this, but we don't have enough people to make this happen. And so we had people that would join our service projects that never came to church. And so we did one day when we built beds, and we had 75 people out there building beds when we had 30 or 40 maybe at a worship service. Um, and so we said, you, they, it's not about us making it happen, let's get this done as a community. So we invite them to know they belong, not necessarily to a common prayer church, but they belong to serving and loving the community. That's kind of how it works. So Ryan is here to be clear, you guys are bivocational. We are. Yeah. We, were, so. we are now. Oh, you weren't at the beginning, right. but you are now. And so you're, you're doing church on a daily basis beside your people, and there's other parts of your church that are like not there in Little Rock area, right? Yeah. Talk about that, yeah. Just for a second. Yeah, so I mean, that's a whole other show, but basically now, our church mostly needs, uh, we were doing online before COVID. Um, now we do online, and, and we don't have a traditional service. We do not come together and worship as most of you would. For us, our, our, our service is on Zoom, where we have a, a 45 minute to an hour session we have people from Omel, some people from the UK, from Texas, from Atlanta, and some other places like that, where that is that is our worship service. Um, and it does look like worship service. And that, there's a whole other way how we got there, but yeah, that's, that's, how, that's, that's how we exist at this moment. You're being very very creative and collaborative in the kinds of things you're doing. I love that. So, what's next? I just, I mean, I really, I think the, the commonality there is just having it. Uh, a sense of responsiveness to the people that are around you. I mean, these these contexts are very different, but it's about being responsive to the people and the needs and the opportunities that you have. You don't have to go out and look for opportunities that match maybe your ideas. And that was a big learning curve for me, is saying, okay, well, it doesn't have to look like what I'm expecting or thinking. I just need to look right around me at the things that are right there in front of me and then be able to know them, to get to know them, and to really see those needs, and then to respond to them. But I think that's what we're all doing. We just have very different contexts, and I think, you know, for, there's probably a unique context for each person in here, but really that responsiveness, I think, is at the heart of it. I love how you're saying that you're, you guys are bivocational, like you're in church every day, but also doing church there. And, um, Going back to the after school program we were talking about earlier, we were there five days a week, and on the sixth six, uh, day of the week, a pastor and his wife who were really close to, they're the um, starters of the after school program, they started doing the church service on Saturday nights. And me and my husband are there with them all week long, and then on Saturday, the church service, and then the kids are not really showing up to the church service. And so I'm like, I, there is something, there's a problem, because something in me said, oh, you failed. You didn't get them to the church service. But you're spending all week with them. Sometimes you're picking them up, you're going to see them at their homes, or you're bringing them over to your house to stay with you, or, or whatever. And I thought I had failed because they didn't show up to the actual church service, the online service. What was causing that kind of thinking? We were doing church all week long. 
And that was, it was just a different context and it was in a different way. And they felt that love because, you know what, we haven't been there since COVID. And two weeks ago, a little girl who we knew from that program showed up at the church that I'm currently with now. She came and sought us out. That's a relationship right there. That means we were doing church with her and that impacted her. In my context, the church that I'm part of is called Storyline. And Storyline historically has been organized as a network of missional communities or house churches or micro churches. We call them missional communities for the most part because it's um, it's weird enough to demand an explanation. <laughs> uh, uh, it's not it's not house church to the degree that it's just we're replicating a worship service in somebody's home. Um, so we call it missional community because for us that means uh, there's a community, a, commu a spiritual community of people who are identifying uh, a neighborhood or a network of relationships that they're going to show up in and be the guests in and pay attention and join in what God might be doing there. And that for the last 15 years of our missional research and development has been the, the, the general pattern kind of our, of our experimentation uh, with a young professional civic organization uh, in our neighborhoods, on our streets, among Iraqi refugees, and most recently among a, uh, a board game in my neighborhood. And I'll tell you about the board game one just as an example of what it looks like. Uh, when my family moved to this new neighborhood several years ago, uh, we immediately thought, okay, we know there's some folks in Storyline that live in this neighborhood too. Can, let's team up together and do some discernment work and identify what are places in the neighborhood around us? Uh, what are things going on that we can join up? And we named several, there's an art festival and there was a big park that everybody took their kids to and, and there was this bar uh, and movie theater that had board games every Sunday night. And we went and did all these things together and kind of checked in, like, what did we experience? How did it go? And we were blown away by the hospitality we received in this board game community. Many of us, myself included, I am not a left-brain strategy board gamer by, by default. I, I knew none of these obscure German games that they were playing in this bar on a Sunday night. I needed help, and I think they saw my beer in the headlights kind of look like I'm intimidated. This is what feels like when we go to church, y'all, right? Uh, so I'm showing up, and, and they're so gracious. Like, come in, uh, let us let us uh, teach you games. Come right in. You know, you, you look like you're new. Have you played this game? This is my favorite. I'll, I'll show you. Let's sit down. And immediately, we were we were looped in, and we decided we want to just start going every every Sunday night for months and months. And over time, as we developed friendships and relationships, a small team of people, we got to know each other. Uh, uh, they started inviting us into their homes, to their board game marathons that were not published. And then, and then um, we had the opportunity to observe, you know, nobody really does anything with, that includes kids. And all of us have kids. So what if we did something in our homes that included our kids and our families. And so we reciprocated and started this Friday night, once a month, board gaming group. And all the time at the center of this is, is a little spiritual community that meets in one of our houses to pray 
and to, and to talk about our relationships and to connect to God to sustain us as we're in relationships with this broader board gaming community. And, and over time, before you know it, we're, we're jamming 50 and 60 people into our house, uh, three-fourths of which are not a part of storyline, but they're, they're a part of us, and we're a part of them. Uh, and, and in my imagination, that's, that's what it looks like uh, for church to go to them, for church to grow up in the context that you enter into, for spiritual community to emerge uh, in the midst of our neighborhood. So let me see if I can just kind of uh, share a little bit. And we're going to open up just a little bit of questions before we come back to some stuff. But what we're talking about is trying to put ourselves as churchgoers, committed Christ followers, in the places where we are outnumbered by non-churchgoers. That's the shift in the power dynamic that is absolutely critical. Now, all of us in our daily life as Christians should be trying to reach out to people. That's just the normal thing. We should be, if we know a friend who's interested in church, we should invite them to church, right? We shouldn't shy away from that. But the key is we're not going to reach non-churchgoers, the 70%, unless we do things creatively and on their terms. Last summer when I was on sabbatical, three weeks I spent in the UK visiting. And it, we didn't, it wasn't like it was sabbatical, so I'm supposed to be taking a slower pace. But we visited with church leaders from Anglican churches, Methodist, Baptist, and then Church of Scotland, and saw how they were trying to do things in their community with people that weren't churchgoers. Like here's one example, a church south of Edinburgh, Scotland. Um, this is a church that was down to seven people. They had two people who were called pioneers who were doing some work in a church-owned community center. And, and during COVID, they would just stand out at the, at, the, at the fence and talk to people as they went by. And they discovered there's a lot of young moms, as they call them, young, young moms, pushing their prams along the street. And they would just talk a little bit as they could during COVID. And they began to say, hey, you know, what, what, well, what's life like for you? What, what's some of your things that you miss? And people were saying, I don't know any other, any other young moms. I'm the only one I know. And so they would say, well, what would you think about helping to put a group together of young mothers? Just to have a little time. And so once COVID ended and they could kind of get meeting, they created a group of non-church-going women with their babies meeting with these two Christian pioneers. It grew into a group of 10, 15 young mothers and their kids meeting on Wednesday morning for coffee and pastry and conversation. And it was little by little. You know, it would grow just over time. And then they, they, they weren't shy about saying the fact that we're Christians. And then as they began to develop the relationship, they would say, hey, you know, you guys have shared things with us. Would anybody want to stay after today for prayer? And they began to grow this group of people who are beginning to love Jesus. So the principles of listening, learning, loving, sharing Jesus, doing community, and repeating it. It's a very simple process of doing this thing over and over again. That's all we're talking about. It's just simply freeing us to do things in new ways with people who won't darken the doors of our church no matter what we do. And so let's just pause if you have a question that we might be able to answer. Um, some will just probably say sorry, but some will try our best. So anybody have a question or comment at this point? We have more to, more to cover, but this is just kind of a little interim pause. Here. Yes. So what I'm hearing is that it's not just you personally are going, but you're taking a community with you to these 
So um, I think it starts with reimagining what is the very nature of church, right? We have so fixated in our minds that church is what happens on Sunday mornings that it actually hamstrings us from doing anything else because we put so many resources, so much time into that single event that we don't value any other expression of church and yet the only way that our unbelieving, unchurched, de-churched uh, friends and neighbors are ever going to have a chance is if we go out to them. So we're going to have to free ourselves up by reimagining the very nature of the word church to being something that goes rather than in addition to something that gathers, right? Uh, and when we do that and we free each other up or little groups of us to go, we also need to think in terms of experimentation rather than solution. We tend to think in terms of solutions. I'm gonna figure this out, I'm gonna do it, and it's gonna work. And then it doesn't work and we get all dejected. Oh. Y'all, this is a grand experiment. We're all in this trying to figure it out. This world has changed, we got left behind, and we're trying to reimagine what does the church look like in this North American culture. Julie and I began to make a list last summer of things that we saw in England of types of expressions of Christian community that were different from our traditional Sunday morning worship gatherings. Messy church, wild church, forest church, Lego church is one of our favorites. Lego church, just on and on, cafe church, um, anxiety support group church, uh, on and on, types of things, just gathering people loving them, listening, sharing Jesus, and calling a church. Not a step to church, but calling a church. So great, great comment. Uh, did you have a question, anybody else? Another question? I mean, real quick, I mean, to that, church has never been singular. Church has never been singular. And so if we're going out, you don't go out, right? So, so if, you're, if you're representing church as we go, just a quick answer to you is, church has never been seen there, so yes, absolutely. You will have better success, not worse. Uh, my question is a little twofold. Uh, I think you mentioned the idea about um, deconstructing and constructing, right? Um, you know, an already existing church that has uh, traditional values, traditional setups, and so forth. Uh, uh, what kind of things do you suggest uh, bringing uh, this kind of reimagining uh, to the church? What kind of actions would that, that might be something in the future of your thing? But uh, that's one question that I did have a second. So the question is, what, what do we do for churches? Do we need to deconstruct some things? So this is where I think we've been on kind of a losing battle, losing cause. We kept thinking to ourselves, the next change will do it for us. If we can finally get to where women and men have equal roles, that will be finally the last piece of the puzzle. But the problem is, every 
incremental improvement, or improvement in our minds, loses people. Because every one of those is a bridge too far for someone. And so we think we're somehow deconstructing for the sake of growth, when in fact, we're just shrinking the Sunday attendance. And so what we're saying is, sideways move. <laughs> yeah, do whatever you need to do to make your church a blessing to the people who are part of that church. And sometimes that's hard negotiation, right? Because we don't always agree what's a blessing. But we're saying sideways move. Do something outside of your Sunday morning gathering. That's what we're saying. I also think it takes the spirit across the valley in our churches. That we say we're going to be open to all and we're going to include all. And when you're really serious about that, that means you have to adjust and change according to the needs of the people that are there. And um, if we love the people that are in our in, in our homes right now and the people that do come, then we will want to change for them and make sure that it is a place that they can belong and that is accessible for them and it will necessitate the change and it will drive the change. I don't think you I don't think you have to figure out what the change needs to look like first. I think if you just create a spirit of hospitality and love and work on that, you know, continue to grow in that, then the natural next step is change because you have to continue to be a place for everything. Um, to that, I mean, sorry. Um, last year, I was hoping that the high schools would actually um, grab the hook, but they did not. Um, with after COVID, and our youth are already so riddled with anxiety, dealing with depression, having mental health issues, a lot of people are just needing mental health support. And I wanted to start a book club at a local high school with juniors and seniors with a book called Body Keeps the School. And go through that book slowly. And just that kind of support and that help. And maybe the bridge, you know, not jumping on it, but maybe possibly God would open the door to a bridge to say, I have designed it in your mind. And I am also bringing healing. And, and quite possibly there would be a bridge to that. But that is one idea when we talk about, like, what could we do? That's got nothing to do with the church service, per se, but I would have loved to sit on the high school lawn with some juniors and seniors and talk about the mental health. Do you want to go to school? I would add something Jason said earlier, and that is none of what we're saying is you have to destroy what is already good. I, just like Jason, I'm very much for the local church. I think it is God's tool, God's mission, and I think you have to keep that worship service top quality because it's what gives the quality, the ability to do what you do. But I think one of the things we have to change is the preacher has to do it all. Or this, if you don't involve a lot of people, then it will become an impossible task. To go back to what somebody said, it's got to be a, a group of people who are willing to work together. And things may have to look a little bit, you may not, you may not have a full phrase to have a first beat or something like that. And you can maybe say, okay, that's okay, because we're trying to do this other thing too on Friday nights or on with, with CR, it's five nights a week. So there's a lot of different things going on that you have to say, you know, is this something that we're willing to give up and is this something that can look a little bit different? In the back? Hi, for those of you who are graduating, external efforts 
mean, we, we want to try to reestablish that the church may have some integrity, right? And so what's the conversation like with the people that you're going out with to say, hey, how do we not look like an espionage team? <laughs> Move, not, I'm being very serious. Move into other people's spaces. Because we're actually here to, to, to convert you all. It's a very important conversation, and a very important part of team formation is just even talking about what what is our imagination about what the mission of God is. Um, are we joining an imperial colonizing crew here that's trying to go into our neighborhoods and dominate people into Christianity? Uh, if so, we'll enter into our neighborhoods with our presentations and our persuasive words and our convincing arguments, not listening to our neighbors and just telling them, you know, gospel bombing them, as it were. Um, I, I don't think that's the heart of God. That doesn't feel good or right to me. It doesn't feel uh, loving to my neighbors. Uh, I, think, I think we need to imagine, um, first of all, that uh, one of the great contributions of missional theology, that, that it is not our mission, we are not the primary missionary. We get to participate. We get to join God's team. And most of the work here is just uh, paying attention for what God is up to. And I think it's uh, one major frame for us is the we talk about flipped hospitality. So maybe for the flipped classroom, uh, it's an educational shift where you move from the sage on the stage the teacher, the arbiter of all truth, to the guide on the side, someone who is facilitating learning. And, and what is similar when we flipped hospitality, where uh, we don't begin as the hosts, which is the power position, um, who controls the parameters, but we begin as the guests. And when you're the guest, the rules are different than when you're the host. You show up to listen, and you're thinking, what are the rules here? I don't set the rules because I'm a guest. What are the customs here? Um, so that's a major part of our own reimagination of what mission is and what our role is. Like we're showing up as guests, just like Jesus and the disciples did to see if anybody will open their tables to us. John 11, 1 through 10 is the story of Mary and the way Jesus' feet. And it's a story of reverse hospitality. Judas has the picture that most of us have come to believe in our churches today, and that's we can't let go. We gotta hold on. Mary, why would you break that? Why would you do that expensive thing? It should have been given to the poor. Why would you do that? Hold on to it. But Mary has the perspective of giving. She gives this expensive perfume to anoint Jesus' feet. We have to be people who give up power. And go into places where we're not in the majority. And that's the missional move. And, and what I think, like, what's been so hard, I can't believe that I didn't understand this. I would like to go back and do mission work over again in Prague. Uh, I'd like to do a lot of things over again, honestly. Uh, but learn from me, okay? What I'm saying is we, we tend to always think we can do something that will get people to want to come. Even things that are done called missional worship is still about lighting some candles and trying to get people to come to it. But we're still in control. 
we're still in charge. We're talking about trying to shift and go into places where we're not in charge anymore. Or maybe we're doing things with others. We're partnering with others. Or we may be in charge, but we really don't know what we're doing. We admit that. We're just learning from them. And so I want to think a little bit together about the need for experimenting. We'll have some more question answered here in a minute. But we really do need to begin to find the way forward. And it's going to take quite a bit of experimentation to figure out what works. And you have, I know, a neat story about Davy Crockett in the Appalachian Mountains, or Appalachian, Appalachian, depending on where you're, Appalachian, where I'm from. Appalachian, yeah. North Carolina, Appalachian. Yeah. <laughs> Talk a little bit about that exploration and the need for that. So, we're imagining a fairly seismic shift in the way we think about Christianity within the larger North American culture. And one way, at least to make sense of me, it may not make sense to any of you, but in the early century, in the, in the latter half of the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, even the beginning of the 18th century, um, we've got all of these Americans coming to the eastern seaboard and the population east of the Appalachians, there's another way of saying it, was growing and growing and growing, right? And the question became, how do we find a pass through the Appalachian Mountains that was wide enough and stable enough that we could get large numbers of people and large amounts of materiel safely through all of the Appalachian Mountains so that we could um, uh, populate the West, right? Or what would today we would think of as Ohio and Indiana and Illinois and that area. Now, all conversations about um, pioneering and, and all of that aside and the appropriateness of that, um, what happened was there were any number of corporations that invested in expeditions, sending out groups of explorers looking for this pathway because whoever finds it is gonna be able to control it and make pretty good money by charging people a fee to take them through this pass. And it was finally in, we say Davy Crockett in about 1805, it was actually discovered a little bit before that, but he was the one that, that sort of made it popular so that large people could get through. Discovered the, um, what am I saying there? Cumberland. Sir? Yeah, Cumberland. Cumberland Pass, thank you. I don't know why I yeah. couldn't remember that. Okay. so. As I see where we stand in North American history, the truth is we don't know what is going to resonate with the 70%. We don't know. In fact, there's not going to be one thing that resonates with the 70%. That 70% is broken up into so many subcultures that in each location among each different population of people, there's going to have to be creativity. Okay. So instead of thinking of ourselves as scientists that come up with the answer, we should be thinking of ourselves more like explorers looking for pathways for the gospel. Many of them won't work. But in order to find those few that do, we have to do lots of experimentation. We have to send out a lot of explorers that are working, and some are working a little better than others and, and all that, and we have to quit thinking in terms of success failure and think in terms of, well, let's give it a go. Let's have fun. Let's, have, let's, let's just try something. 
and we'll learn from it, then we'll pivot and we'll do something else and we'll see if God will empower us and bless us and draw people into his presence through it. I'm preaching. So, I mean, like, we, we um, have these expensive buildings and we spend a lot of money and resources on our worship services and many of us are proud of what we do. We like our church and we want people to see it. So it's natural that we're trying to direct everybody to that because that's what we value. It's what we spend our money and time on. But what we're saying is we probably have to experiment on some other things that are out of our comfort zone probably, but that are going to depend on the help of others to find ways of working. Um, I, I think like for years, my dad, who was a preacher in Middle Tennessee for the, from 1977 to 2007 when he went into semi-retirement, um, he was doing this kind of thing before um, anybody really knew what this was. He was doing uh, recovery groups. They they created a, a community house where the folks who were recovering from alcoholism and drug addiction would meet on Sunday mornings. And I remember now, as I look back on it, there were people from church who would complain. Why don't they ever come to our church? When are they going to come to church? You're doing all this work with these people. When are they going to show up? And I don't think anybody meant that like in a mean way, right? But it just reveals the lens that we have. That we think the measuring stick is what happens in the Sunday morning worship. And COVID has helped us in this, right? <laughs> We've had to change the measuring sticks. So I want to think together about how we might change some measuring sticks, how we might do some experimentation. Something else you want to yeah? Yeah. Um, so one habit that we've fallen into, at least in the last 500 years, is that we have been focused on being the culturally dominant people. And so we, we approach our culture as if we are the dominant people. And it's probably been 30 or 40 years since Christians were the dominant force in North American society, longer in Canada than in the US. Uh, and the fact that many of us are from the Deep South, it hasn't been quite as long there as it's been in other parts of the country. But we continue to behave as if we are the culturally dominant ones. We're not the culturally dominant ones. It, we can't be looking at how to do God's mission as the people that have the social power. We, we no longer have social power. In fact, uh, if you watch the news, uh, we've lost it quite a bit, quite quickly lately, um, for a whole wide variety of reasons. We would be better off not to look at the past three or 400 years, but to go all the way back about 1,200, no, excuse me, uh, 1800 years, 1700 years, to those couple of centuries right before Christianity became legalized in the Roman Empire, when Christians were, were not the cultural force, they were the ones on the edge of society trying to figure out how do we stand in this society as Jesus people and somehow get voice, get, get, a, get an opportunity to speak. And I would contend that it comes down to kind of the ethical posture that we take. 
that instead of being concerned with institutional issues, we should be far more concerned with ethical issues, as in, in the first two or three centuries, Christians, Christianity became very popular and utterly transformed a very violent and hedonistic Roman society, largely because they stood up for people. They stood up and gave voice on behalf of people that had no voice. Even Christians who had no voice, they would still stand up. And I could tell you a story, many of you know the stories, of the way Christians stood up for people, and sometimes to their own detriment. But when you do that, over time, you do that over and over and over again, the, the larger community begins to realize these are people that love in a different kind of way. They're not just interested in me coming into their building. They care about me, right? And so I would contend that we would do much better to look back at about 300, 200, 300, uh, maybe even for the first generation after Constantine, and look at what Christians were doing then and start finding ways of doing something similar today. So I would say that we don't have to look back 1,800 years. We can find those people who, who are former missionaries and youth ministers, and people who are doing church planting in very creative ways like these folks. Some church plants, like you said, are just simple, we're just simply white suburban kind of church plants. But it's no, it's no uh, surprise to me that in the UK, the ones who are leading the remission there are former missionaries and youth pastors. So, okay, so let's think about some things we might do to experiment and just try to figure out what works. I think, I think we need to, to go in, in groups, not just do one, one person. That need the two, three, four, five people that do this together. You suggested something like a, a, a body groups or support group, right, to try to build Christian community with people. But let's think of some other ideas. Could you guys just share with us, use your creativity to give some ideas that folks might take back and try things that you've heard about um, that folks might try uh, just to build Christian community with non-church goers. I'd say one of the first things is look at your own gifts and talents and the gifts and talents of the people you're around. You think we have this magic pill that you got to take back and come back to the lectureship. Well, this is working here, so it's going to work there. That's not necessarily true. Uh, I think our celebrity prayer works because of the gifts and talents of making up our family of God. And I think it would not work in the very place. So look at who's a part of your group, what are the gifts and talents that they have, and you go back to what you heard so many people say, if you don't love people, and this, you're not going to do this, it's got to be you love because Christ loves you, and therefore you care about people, because if you get out there, people are going to know that you're doing it because you love them and want to help, or you're going to get a notch on your belt. And so look at your own gifts and talents. What are some ministries that you have that you could get into the community and connect with help people in different ways or make connections, but look at your own gifts and talents, look at the gifts and talents of the group that makes up your group that's going to go out with you, to go into the community. What, what can we do that will reach out and touch people? You know, we have Celebrate Recovery, we have a school adoption, we have a ministry, a food ministry, but we've actually got to point where I say, okay, we've got to slow down a little bit, you know, and we, can, we, only have, we only have so many gifts and talents, we can't stretch people too much, so... Look at what are the gifts and talents that you have. Uh, you'd be surprised how that, that talent that God blessed you with maybe something that could bless somebody else's life. In addition to that is where God has worked in your life. If you've gone through some difficult point, don't be surprised if God can't use that to touch somebody else. Uh, so whether it's through divorce, uh, whatever the issue may be, 
how can I reach out and touch other people who are struggling with the same thing? I, I guess this, this starts for me. I don't, what, I don't know, what did you learn from COVID? And from what we saw, you know, people didn't go back, right? After COVID was gone. The question is why? And I would suggest they saw that their life is no different. Maybe even better by not being a church. Why? Because they were buying into our product, but when they looked at everybody else's lives, there wasn't much of a difference in the outcome. And so if there's not a difference, why do I do it? You know? And so for me, that has kind of morphed into what we do. And I could give you ideas and you know to go with your guests and stuff, but I would I would want you to hear thing that we've heard over and over again, like this past Easter, everybody gears up for Easter. It was probably the most simplistic Easter we've ever done in our ministry lives, and it's possibly the most impactful. And the thing that keeps coming up over and over in our situation is that I have a place to be authentic. That so many people are seeing church as production, and not just worship. Some of our programs, right, they're taught to act certain ways. Like if I said, let's pray, we'd all bow our heads, right? And that's not just really wrong. But we're teaching action. This is the way you act. And so for us, where we find, and, I, and the ideas we can brainstorm at that time, but I would simply encourage you, the ecclesial minimum is an incredible conversation you have to have as a church. But then the second part is, what can we do that honors the ecclesial minimum that allows anybody and everybody to truly be authentic in worship, in community, and in service. If you can find that answer for your specific context, I think you have the golden goose. People want to be authentic, and they realized through COVID, we weren't being authentic when we were going to church. So I'm, I'm good right now. So that would be my, it doesn't give you the here's bliss too, but to me, that is the key in this conversation finding ways to allow the people you're serving to truly not be like you or like your church, but to be who they are and still meet Jesus. I think the answer to that means that it can work like anything. Um, you know, that anything that you already are involved in or that you're already interested in or the people around you already want to do and that's the beauty of it, is it can become church. So I would encourage you to think about those things. And then really the bonus to that is that you probably already like to do those things, so it's not like this big burden. It's something maybe that you enjoy or that you're interested in, and so it's the burden is, the yoke is easy in, in that case, which is which is really great, you know, that, that it's a both-and kind of situation. It is... It is the work of the Lord, and it's something that is enjoyable. I would just add that I think we all try as Christians are glorious to have that song in our head, this is how we wash our clothes. And we don't even know it. We have so many rules that we follow, and we don't realize it. And I think as a church, it's really good if your church is able to sit down and think about what are our rules. What are our non-negotiables? 
Because if you're not aware of that first before you go out, you're going to follow those rules and not even know it. They're going to be fed up and that might just be, you might just be doing the same thing over just in a different way. And that's what we're trying to avoid. I think that um, the Spirit of God is at work in the unraveling of the church. Yeah. I don't think that's, I think God is at work in the unraveling. There is, uh, there is, there are things of God in the unraveling, that amidst the unraveling, uh, the Spirit is fermenting and bubbling and, and, and if uh, the invitation of the Spirit of God as the, the number one missionary, if the invitation of the Spirit of God to the church is to join in and participate and locate where the Spirit is bubbling and emerging new things, then this whole thing about fresh expressions and remissioning and all of that is really an exercise in spiritual discernment, which is a different way, just a different way of saying being responsible and and listen and learn. Um, that that's the that's saying the same thing in different language. And I'll, I'll add um, my favorite frame, uh, which comes from my mentor. Elaine Heath, who is a, a missional and contemplative ninja, um, you know, she would say to do this work. I mean, who to thought? I mean, we're talking about remissioning. Who to thought you'd come and be like, well, you need to be a contemplative to be able to do this. I, I, I think that's true. We need to have a contemplative posture in the world, and this is what it means. And Elaine has kind of a fourfold way of describing it. Um, number one is to show up. That we show up. Um, we show up to God. Um, we show up to ourselves. What is what is life-giving and life-draining in me right now, in my neighborhood, in my family, in my church? And we show up, in particular, uh, with and to our neighbors. We show up. Uh, location is important. We, we show up as guests. We show up out there in, in the midst of the unraveling, in the midst of the lives of our neighbors. So that's one Number one, show up. Number two, uh, pay attention. Uh, our contemplative stance is just to look and to listen and to observe and to take it in and to wonder, what is God up to? What's going on inside of me? As I show up, what, what is life-giving and life-draining? Let me follow the stream of life that is emerging. And what, what's... What's, uh, what, what is bubbling up in the lives of my neighbors as I show up? This is the experimentation of it all. Step two, show up. Step three, uh, join in. Participate. Collaborate with whatever you see God doing. Uh, join in. And sometimes you'll hit a wall and, well, no, maybe that wasn't it. And like Todd said, you pivot. And you hit a wall and you pivot. But we're, we're showing up. And we're just participating. We're collaborating. We're iterating, to use in the language of inter, uh, innovation. We're iterating toward something. And then number four, which is the most difficult for me as a uh, closet Enneagram 3, 
uh, release the outcomes. Release the outcomes. We release the outcomes to, the, to our neighbors and to God. So many terrible things happen to people. Colonization, uh, exploitation, oppression, objectification happens when we feel like we must manage and control the outcomes. This contemplative posture requires us to release the outcomes and to let what happens and what is birthed um, uh, just to stand by and to participate in and not to feel like we have to control it. Uh, Charles just said a mouthful, didn't he? I mean, he just said a mouthful. And the implications of what he just said are enormous. But that last one, release the outcomes, that drives right at the heart of how we trust God. Is this God's mission or is this my mission? If I am more worried about looking bad because something doesn't go right, then it's my mission. If I'm going to control it so that I look good, it's my mission. Or if the church is only going to support those things that turn out fantastic, then it's not God's mission because we don't know what God's going to do. He might go this way and he might go that way. And what we've got to do is pay attention, look and listen, follow, do our best, but then release it and let God do with it whatever he wants to do. And one kind of little mantra that we've had in Mission Live that we picked up along the way years and years ago is this, and it has helped me many, many, many times. Kingdom of God is not in trouble. Right? Sometimes we get so antsy, so you know, anxious that oh, something's going to fall apart. Listen, yes, I gave you guys a bunch of numbers about the decline of Christianity numerically, but God's kingdom is not in trouble. God's got this thing. Well, sometimes we need to wake up a little bit, and that's been true throughout history. But God's got this thing, and we can trust His mission to Him. Yeah, and I was just going to add, it really, it does require you to redefine success and what that looks like. And I think in doing any of this and, and, you know, experimenting and being curious and trying things, you, you won't get very far if you don't change your definition of success because it just feels like you fail, 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 fail all the time. When actually that's not true because God never expected me to bring in so many people in the door or whatever those, whatever those definitions that I have in my mind what success looks like. Success is me being faithful to walk and do life with him. And if I'm doing that by trying something and failing, it's a success. And so I like whatever that looks like in, in your churches and in your life, like that's that's a really important part is for you to really think about what what really is success? What does God view as success for me? And really it's just that I just stick with him. That's it. Um, and that can that, that, just, that frees you up to try things because you don't have to be afraid of it of leading to a certain outcome like Todd said. So here's the crazy thing. <clears throat> we believe in evangelism. And evangelism is a bad word for a lot of people. I get it. I understand why. Because of the trauma that has been inflicted on people in the name of evangelism. But the idea is still our goal. 
to partner with God in redeeming the world. Not just the earth, yes, but people. And so we really believe in that. And so um, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, kenosis, self-emptying, that's to be our, our work, right? To, to, to give ourselves on behalf of others. But there are some great things that you might just try. And listening is going to be the first thing you have to do, listening. To your own uh, resources, but also to your community, to God. Because guess what? You're not bringing God to your community. The Holy Spirit is ahead and has been there at work for a long time and has been waiting for you to join. And so uh, you're not bringing God to your community. But there are a lot of ideas you might try. And just um, like that list of resources that you have, begin with that. We've looked through some things there. But I've, I've really been incredibly blessed by the writing, and I got to visit with him this summer, of Mike Mornyah. And Michael Mornyah has written what I think should be the book that every minister should read. It's a doorstop book, almost 500 pages, called A Church for Every Context. He grew up as a missionary kid in Uganda. He came back, did, went into business, then switched to... Uh, become a, an Anglican priest and now is a professor and he in that book better than anyone I've ever read integrates ministry, theology, mission and business principles in a way that he's become the godfather of this kind of uh, fresh expressions movement in the UK and, and he has, has some really great practical books that are kind of co-written with others one of them, well, this one right here is um, with uh, being church doing life it just has how many stories a lot of 120 stories that just simply give you some idea an imagination the way the way people have done this in their context this is not a how-to book this is just simply to open up your mind for some possibilities berlin fosner who in seattle uh, transitioned his church a number of years ago uh, from a traditional type church where they felt like they were failing because they just couldn't get people to come they transition slowly to becoming a dinner church where they have uh, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve churches across the Seattle area that meet over dinner. Some of these are in urban, I mean, areas where folks are food poor. And so they come because it's a free dinner. And he tells stories about people that he's gone to dinner with every Tuesday night for three years. And finally, after three years, this guy says, hey, Pastor Berlin, sit by me tonight. And the guy begins then to ask questions about Jesus. They are patient. They're building relationships. They're listening. They're sharing Jesus. It takes that kind of commitment to do this kind of stuff. But it's simply about us becoming missionaries again. We've lost the thread of mission in the Western world. We've counted on culture backing us up. And so we're really having to learn and and kind of put some muscles into motion that we haven't used for a long time. So we're, we're all pioneers to go back and do some of this stuff because this is not being implemented. It's not even being understood by a lot of people. So I'm hopeful that if we start trying this, it really can make a difference because you guys have stories of how it is. Any other ideas that you might share? Um, yeah, you talked about being where God works and you believe so much in that, but also when you're working with people, you have to be patient. And just because you hit a roadblock doesn't mean that wasn't where God was working. It could just be it's a tough situation that you're going to have to work through. So don't give up. Don't quit. Uh, you know, we have a saying that we borrow from Rick Warren that, uh, you know, ministry is working with messy people in messy work. But aren't we all messy? And thank goodness God loves messy people. And so the idea being that sometimes it's tough. 
And sometimes you just you have situations where it looks like the work's going great, and all of a sudden you get a roadblock, and you think, oh, this must not have been God. No, it's just something the devil put up in the way, and you just got to work through it and just keep going. Because if you love people and you're involved in people, you're going to get hurt sometimes. Sometimes you're going to have disappointments, but the success of watching someone see Jesus for the first time is the greatest moment you'll ever Some things won't work. And so that, that's what it's about. It's not ever quitting. It's about you love people, and that's why you do it, because Jesus loves you, and he'll never forget that. Um, we're going to take some questions here in a minute, but I, I don't want the message to be all negative. Um, I had recently, in the last, say, two months, come across several articles that are suggesting that the generation of kids that are in middle school and high school are more spiritually dialed in and asking more questions than the previous say, generation of kids or something like that. Now, don't go run off and say they're all going to come to Christ. That's not what we're saying, right? We're saying that there is an openness and a questioning among this generation that have been kind of raised in a fairly negative world, and they're looking for something that they can hold on to. And I'm going to give you one example. About 16 months ago, I walked in on a Sunday morning and in the last row of our auditorium was a young 22-year-old man. And he is Filipino, and he's dressed in a three-piece suit. Now, I wear what I'm wearing right now. Most Sundays are some variation of this. And he's dressed in a three-piece suit. He's got his hair combed and it's slicked down and all, and he's sitting there. I'm like, well, I can't let that go, man, right? Like, of course I'm going to talk to this guy. So I go slide up next to him. And uh, he introduces himself to me. And the second thing out of his mouth after his name was, I'm looking for God. Oh, man. You know, now, in the 16, 17 months, whatever it's been, um, he has given his life to Christ. But he's also been in the psych hospital, I think, four times. He struggles with depression. He, he lives with his folks, but he's got a, a bit of a contentious relationship with his dad. You know, there's all kinds of junk going on, right? And while our church is nothing like, I mean, the, the first fact that he walked in is a miracle, right? Because our church is, if it, you know, we have people of color, but it is largely a white, wealthy, or semi-wealthy suburban church. And he walked in, and he sat down, and he said, he said, I'm looking for God. And he ain't the only one. There are people in our community looking for God. He had the courage to walk in. Praise the Lord for that. A whole bunch of them don't. But if we'll just make ourselves available to them, we'll be able to have conversations with them. It'll come up. So I'm personally kind of done with the doom and gloom thinking. And, and it's not because I don't see the numbers. I, I get it. It's, it. Things are declining, right? Things are, we're in, we're in trouble in some sense. But I'm like, that's where God does his best work. <laughs> I mean, like, yay. <laughs> and, and I think that um, we have a gold mine called the church. And we know we have a world filled with people who are lonely and hungering for all kinds of things. 
how can we simply extend what we know to be an enormous treasure out into the places where people can access it? That's really what we're focused on. And um, like, I think sometimes we're too fixated on, on like superstar people. Uh, I remember hearing a church uh, planting guru one time talking about how they were trying to recruit church leaders to plant churches. And he said, we're not looking for church leaders who can plant a 50-member church or a 100-member church. We're looking for church leaders who can plant a 1,000-member church or a 5,000-member church. And I, and I said, anybody can plant a 50-member church. And I thought to myself, this is interesting. It didn't sit well with me. But it kind of had to percolate for a minute. And I thought later, if anybody could plant a 50-member church, then why the heck are we not doing that? And think about it. If everybody was planting a 50-member church, we wouldn't have the problems we're having right now. Unleash the power of our churches to go into our communities and bring Jesus. I know it's not quite that simple, but I mean, I'm just saying we have to try things. And we're going to fail. We're going to learn from it. We're going to try something different. But we just need to try. We need to try. But we have to have permission. We have to have understanding that church isn't just 9 to 10 or 10 to 11, right? So there are some things that we do have to negotiate, right, to get there. But if we can kind of have that understanding and try those things together, wow, I'm, I'm not at all pessimistic. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not just an optimist because I think it's a tough thing that we're against. But my mentality to, to kind of uh, paraphrase Paul is screw it. <laughs> We're going to fight on anyway. The odds are unwinnable. We're going to fight on. We're not going to give up. We're going to try things until we find something that works, till we get through the mountains. I think we're more at like a blockbuster Netflix kind of a situation. Yes, yes. We're like, yes. You know, right. you look at Netflix and I mean, it takes me a minute, but I remember getting the DVDs in the mail. You know, like that was what Netflix did. But man, I like barely remember that time because they completely changed the way they've done it. And not only that, but they're more successful. They're in more homes. They've grown more because of the change, because of the way that they're doing it now. They've been able to change and pivot to meet the change in our society. Whereas Netflix did it and it does. Or both. So to me, I think it's I think that's what I like to think about more. It's like it's not about, oh no, we're in trouble, you know, and then all of a sudden what do we do to hold on to what we got? It's like we have a real opportunity here to be more relevant, to be, you know, more permeated into into all kinds of different situations and, and, and have a further reach. But it takes a change from DVD to streaming. So we have about 30 minutes of questioning and answering, maybe. But, and Todd and I are going to close this with a little count the cost kind of moment. Because um, there's a cost involved in doing this, right? So, but let's open up for questions that may be for us or our panelists that you might have at this point. How So, So you're talking about is this 
existing church, trying to take the pinprick of mission that is barely existent. I mean, I would say just speaking as a minister in an existing church, there are people probably in just about every church who are frustrated with the status quo. Who are those people? Who are those people that are on the fringes, maybe, who have a hunger for something more and sit down with enough coffee, dream together? I would say it's not either or. I would say do, do both. And, you know, if, if there's some people that want to break away and go do something less that, resource it if you can. And, and with those that, that kind of want to stay, keep moving them toward thinking and behaving more initially. And just let God work in all of those spaces. And I'm not trying to get rid of members from your existing church, but we're thinking about spreading the umbrella of your church to, to encompass more than one type of community. So there's some ways to think about that, but it takes more conversation. So, another question? Yeah. I had an observation. Yeah, question. Um, one of the things that COVID should have taught us, which, you know, I came in a little late, but should have taught us, is when churches, thank you, when, when churches were shut down, um, it, it cast a shadow over in, in the lives of many Christians because they could no longer go into a place to worship. Or, I'm going to say it this way, to do church. And <clears throat> sometimes we have to be really honest. And we have to, as a, as a preacher, which is what I am, uh, my job is to hold people to a certain level of accountability, and that accountability is to God. And so, <clears throat> what I've learned in my short tenure as a minister of the Word is that we are very good at doing church. And when church was no longer available, then we had a problem. It's kind of like, um, and, and, and as I, I'm relating this to, you know, we find these, it's not like bait switch to me. It's just what it's like. You know, try to sell the idea to some people that, you know, we're going to offer this to you, and then through that, you're going to get to know God. That kind of sounds like they can switch to me. Um, I, I, I get the idea. Um, but it's kind of like, I like molten lava cake when I go to a restaurant. And it could be a really good restaurant that I like. And the food is good, and the service is good. And all of everything is good. At the end of my meal, I eat and I order molten lava cake. Who doesn't like molten lava cake? Yeah, right. Um, and so, if they take molten lava cake off the menu, am I going to continue to go to their restaurant? That's a question I have to decide. So I have to look at, there's got to be something about that restaurant that's going to keep me there. They gotta have good service, good, you know, you know, all other things, you know, lights, whatever, whatever it is that I like. So what I'm getting at is this. I think from my experience, it's been a re-education process in such that we have to make people aware that we are really good at doing church, going to worship, singing songs, contribution, community, 
means of doing those five acts of worship, you know, all the things that we do. And when we do those things, we have to keep in mind that are we going to church to get something or are we going to church to give something? And if we are going to get something, if that thing that we are no longer expecting to get is not there, are we going to keep going? Okay, could you kind of cut that? Is there a question? Can you kind of stop so we can move on to somebody else? Because I appreciate it. Okay, thank you. So, you want to answer that or say something? Yeah. Or no? Um. <laughs> I mean, I would just say that you're speaking from a paradigm that I have a different paradigm. Um, but I think, but, but I would agree that the people who want to go to church need your church to function as well as it can. Well, I didn't, I didn't make yeah. my point. The point is, is okay. when we bring people into church, if the culture within the church, within the community of members has not changed, then what is it that's going to keep people there? With yeah. the, the community within the church has to change. So, so like what we're saying is that there's a 30% that might be interested in going to church, 15% that are in a church every Sunday. We really need to pay attention to that, to that group of people. We would agree with that, yes. 100%. And I would agree also that with an established church, you have to change the attitude. It has to be missional. It has to be a church that loves the Lord and loves the lost. That has to be the attitude for an established church for it to be able to try these new things. You need to be having that attitude. But the caveat being not everybody's going to get on board. And so if your expectation is we're going to bring everybody on board and then we'll do it, we're never going to get there. And so it has to be. We take the group who wants to go and do the work and who wants to establish it and we go out and reimagine and do new things with the understanding that yes, we all need to love the Lord, we all need to love the lost, but we're not going to get everybody in there. It's like with COVID. People quit coming and came back for different reasons. There's all different reasons about it. Let me go back and answer the question over here a little differently this time and, and say, if you had a choice between sending them out or growing the local mission within the local congregation, it has everything to do with whether or not your church loves people. If your church loves church more than it loves people, you probably don't want to grow that mission. Because that's not what Jesus died on the cross for. He died on the cross for people. And what we see, and this is why I think the early centuries of the church are good to study, we see people that love their community, in some cases to the point of death, whether or not those people ever darkened the door of the worship gathering and the catacombs or wherever it was they happened to be worshiping. That's the difference between loving church versus loving people. If you love people, You've got what you need to do mission in any context, but you've got to love people. And so if the church that we have, when you really boil it down, doesn't love people, leave. <laughs> I, I, I don't mean to be, be contrarian. I mean, that is not what Jesus did. That's not what he Jesus represented the love that God has for every one of his creatures as well as the whole of creation and so go find some people that actually love other people live 
for those people, whether or not they ever come to Christ, it's not the issue. But here's what I'm going to bet. If you love people that way, some of them are going to want to know why. Next uh, question. Just by uh, uh, an example of maybe would uh, be helpful here uh, with uh, uh, our, my current context, I'll just share with that, and then uh, I'll ask the question. But uh, in West Springfield, Massachusetts, where we are, we have uh, engaged in a Let's Start Talking ministry that has just exploded. So we have a lot of international people. And again, that was so totally out of our framework. And uh, it took a tornado to hit our area and for us to extend ourselves for that uh, trickle up to, to be discovered. And so we have, we have just seen uh, nationality after nationality uh, in our area. We've offered the, you know, the, the, the English, uh, conversational English. And, uh, but we've established uh, a very loving environment for, for those people. And I say environment, I'm not talking just about the church building environment and, and so forth. <clears throat> but it has been an uh, environment where we have uh, helped their need. And so many of them, as uh, Brother Barry said, have, have had great hurts because their, their neighborhood was a bomb by a bomb in Ukraine. And so they are shell shocked, literally, you know. And so um, they have appreciated being loved, uh, and so forth. What often is the challenge for that kind of ministry is not so much that we feel like we're going to be successful getting them into church. Many of them are part of their church community, but there is a connection with the church that we would like to have more, uh, but sometimes the language is the bar you know, the barrier there. And so I think somebody had mentioned about working with refugees. Uh, and so, you know, that's one particular area of being missional. But how, what kind of suggestions, if you've done that kind of work, uh, refugee type work in the community, uh, where you have been able to engage the existing congregation in a lot of those networking and so forth, and uh, to, to, to enhance that. Good, good and, question. Uh, what we have done works is small groups, and that is easy. We're constantly starting a new small group. We just started one a few weeks ago, because that's how you're able to establish those relationships. And if they're working, they're going to grow to a point you start another one, another one. So again, it's not bringing the traditional Sunday morning worship service, it is starting with the small groups. And there you build your relationships, and that's where it all takes place, is in the small group ministry. So. Mm -hmm. did, did I hear you saying that, uh, like, there's a, with a community of refugees, many are connected to church, but there's cultural difference, and you're, there's a desire for the, uh, those communities to kind of connect across those differences, for, for churches to connect across the differences? I think that's one thing, but uh, it's, it's, you know, our own little, little church uh, of 50, you know, uh, we, we, want to, we want to extend ourselves more into that community that we're really, 
And what's challenging is they're so faithful to the Lord in their Ukrainian Russian Baptist church or in their Slavic Pentecostal church, and they have such great faith, you know, uh, that way that um, I've heard that comment. I can't wait that they're going to come to church, you know, and it almost puts this sort of, you know, on the effort, but yet. I would like to be able to make sure that we can offer something that would be vital for that community of faith. And yeah, I'd love for them to come to our assembly. You know, I, I, I would certainly say that that's something I would like to see. Uh, and it's happening a little bit, and it's all happening basically through building those loving relationships. You know, uh, with them and so forth. But Me. I guess I guess my question was related that if anybody has experimented in that particular arena <coughs> with internationals within your community and how how that has worked and what what other ideas would you have with that? Uh, you know, I think about uh, a framework from Dr. Sung Chin Ra, who's a professor of evangelism mission for. Uh, who has written books about multi-ethnic church and connecting churches uh, cross-culturally. I mean, I hear your story, and I, I if I'm in your shoes, I'm seeing these, these uh, Ukrainian neighbors or brothers and sisters in Christ, and how can we connect across the, the cultural difference? Uh, Ross framework is uh, shared worship, which is our, our heads almost naturally go there. How can we worship together? But the other two are maybe less intuitive, um, but are really powerful. Um, the second one would be shared fellowship. Uh, there's so much richness in cross-cultural relationships around food, holidays, like uh, using cultural, uh, uh, you know, customs as a, an opportunity to learn and to connect, to become the learner of your Ukrainian neighbors and. What are the customs around this? And tell me all the things. I, I want to, where does this come from? Just to be curious. Uh, uh, so I think that provides some, just sharing meals, sharing fellowship, having parties together is a great way to do it. Um, and then number three is shared service. Um, finding what, what's going, what are we involved in in our community together where we can link arms in ways maybe that subvert the language difference where we can work with our hands together and serve and help someone else who needs it. Thank you, that's very helpful. So I think one of the one of the kind of thoughts and questions, the case commission was talking about what, what gets them, keeps them. And so in, in campus mission we're looking at international students and stuff, you have this fun thing, but then there's got to be this this transition and like Mark said here, we don't want to turn it into uh, this, this idea of a, of a bait and switch. And so the big question that I'm looking at is this transition. You know, I became a, I became a basketball one because I got tired of yelling at the other refs. And so I became one. And, but once I was in there, I was like, what does it look like to be, you know, church within that, within that context? And, and so, like, we've got the game night, I've got this reffing experiment. How do we, like, like what, is that, what does that step look like transition into, 
versus yeah, versus social club versus just you know a part of this. How does how does Jesus show up? So I'll just start off and I'll let somebody else jump in with it. But um, I think it is really important that it's not a baby switch. I think that's something to be aware of, and I'm glad you brought that up um, because it's not. It, there, I, there shouldn't be a transition, in my opinion, and I think that's that's a good way to maybe test it to see if it's if it's if you're on the right track. Because really, all of these things that we're doing, like we're creating community through something else, so it's not the doing the board game and then transitioning over into something more authentic or real or, or legitimate. It's the board game is you're creating community over that, doing that action. And we do that in, in our current church context. We create community over certain practices that we do within our churches. This is just creating the same spiritual community and connectedness that allows for that growth, both with God and with our, our community and with the world. It's within a different context, so I think it is good. It's something to, to talk about and be really careful, but but not that it's okay. You start with one thing and then you, you transition over into the real thing. Is that the real thing is started from the beginning? You're just using a game night or you're using a celebrate recovery group as a way over which to create that community, that connection, and that spiritual community. It's like you know when we share a meal together, you're connecting over a meal. That's something that we do. I think we all do that very well. And kind of have experienced that where when you just eat with somebody, there's there's a connection that you're able to create. Or if you're doing a Bible study with somebody, there's a connection that you create. We're just talking about creating those connections with other other ways of doing it. But the connection is what you're doing, and you're doing it from the beginning, and you continue it on. It never it never stops. There's never a I'm doing this to get that. It's it's community building from the beginning. I'd say that transition piece, right, is for us, usually the transition is when can I bring the Bible study into it? Mm-hmm. It's not church until I bring the Bible study into it, right? And so I think it's that permission to say that I can speak Bible without using the Bible. And so again, what is God all about? It's God about God about making humans the best they were meant to be the way He created them to be. And for those that aren't ready for those conversations, you know it's not that they switch, it's how do I go from talking about basketball or games to let's now experience life together and let's talk about how do we make our lives better? Just that next step is, is how do I make you the better person that you're made to be that you maybe don't know yet? But can I do that without using language or using language that comes from scripture that's maybe not holy scripture, right? And so the idea is not you know, how do I get into a Bible study, it's how do I start having those conversations that I've been with them now, they see that I'm invested. They're going to start, they're going to start, and I think that's the key, is you have to wait for them to ask the questions. If they're going to start asking questions, and you don't have to bring out scripture, but you can bring out scripture, right? So to me, that, that's, it's not the end all, be all. I would say the next step in those situations is to start hiding how to get into the messiness of life to be better humans, maybe not to be better Baptists or Church of Christ members. And I think that's the tr- a transition piece. And I think we have to grow Self-permission that we don't have to bring out God immediately, but we can still bring it out. Hope that makes sense. What? Being, being available uh, to them, listening, and showing up. Yeah. You can't push it, right? And this, I mean, it's the whole, they have to give you permission. And so until that permission is given, you keep refing, you keep playing games, you know. And then there's going to be that moment, right? Remember, it's kids, right? 
it's, it's, it's the worst moment that that'll happen to. I think we need to take off the table entirely. Just, I know that it's very hard to think about it this way. But taking off the table entirely that we expect anything from the people that we're trying to do. We're not expecting them to come. We're not trying to show them something so that they'll come or that they'll convert or that they'll anything. Number one, we are entering into community and loving people, period. And if God moves within those relationships, then we let him. So, I did because they paid me for that. Killed the cost. I mean, I would say that's what we were going to talk about at the end, about counting the cost, is that if you're going to free up a few people to do something like this, that they may only have a certain amount of time that they can give. And so you're asking now people to start a um, Tuesday morning cafe with a retired people who live in your neighborhood and build community there. So they're going to invest four hours of their you know, their week for that. And so they may not come every Sunday morning now because they're doing church on Tuesday morning. So, yeah. Are you willing to shrink the circles of the other two? To grow the mission because you may not have as many people who want to sing on your praise team now or who want to work in your children's ministry now because they're being redirected to this other thing so that is a count a cost you have to count i think and and keeping in mind that the goal of shrinking two in order to enlarge the other is not for the further goal of moving them from the mission circle back into the worship circle right that that's sort of the bait and switch i think that you were kind of getting at is we're not doing all of this in order to enlarge in our worship services. We're suggesting that church is much, much more than just a Sunday morning gathering. And that these guys, if they don't have some place to go on a Sunday morning, they're still 100% church. In fact, I will, I will go on the record here and say, I think, I think our star-making mentality that's been driven by, I think, probably media, I think that hurts us, right? But if I have any stars, if I have any heroes of the faith, it's these folks right here and a whole bunch of others that, that work with us because they're the ones, they're the ones, and, and I, I've even had some established churches call me up and they're saying, well, you know, our numbers are shrinking, we're down to you know, 70 people or 60 people or 50 or 40. And I'm like, I sent this guy and his wife and another couple out and they started with four people. That couple started with that couple, two people. And God moved, right? If you've got 20 people, you've got five times what they had, or 10 times what they had, five times what they had, right? Like. This is where our, 
our metrics are all screwed up, right? God works in amazing ways in smallness. You may not need a team of 20 people. I mean, to celebrate recovery like you, you need a big team. But you may need five people, three people. Right. So we have up here, one side, established churches, and then planted new church, new innovative faith. Um, not every established church is going to be able to make this switch without blowing up the whole ship and just ends very bad What could, even if the established church itself can't make the shift, what can established churches do to support more those who are called the three people sitting right by the Charles, the three people sitting right up there, for who know God is sending me out into this marginalized neighborhood, this neighborhood of refugees or whatever. There's no special sauce here, right? I mean, we need the established church in the same way grandkids need their grandparents, right? That there is a heritage here that gets passed down, and yet none of us expect our grandkids to do life exactly the way we do it. And yet somehow, churches want the churches that they help plant to look just like them, even though we're talking about different cultures, different generations. So... I would say the most important thing that an established church can do to support people like this is the freedom to be different, the encouragement to be different. Um, years ago, I was at a meeting with a bunch of church leaders. We were looking at planning churches in post-Katrina New Orleans. And we spent all afternoon working on this point alone, the idea that we've got to free our church planners up to be responsive to the culture and the condition of where they're planting. And finally, one of the church leaders, after about two hours, he says, I think I'm understanding what you're saying. You're saying we have to be willing to plant churches we don't want to worship in. Gold <laughs> star for the day, right? So those of us here that are in the established church, we have got to be willing to free up, not just people like this, but people in our own churches to go and do different things, to do that experimentation, that, that adventuresome thing to try and find the Cumberland Gap here. Let's bless it. Let's resource it, right? We, I mean, as we've said, resources, I mean, 95 plus percent of resources get kind of sucked up making sure that Sunday morning thing happens right, well, of course. I mean, it takes resources. These folks would love to have dinner tonight, right? It takes resources. And so, you know, we need that. We need teams. We need other people that are willing to work with people like that uh, to go with them and help them. Uh, and I hate that I waited for this to be the last point I'm going to make, but, man, we need they need the Holy Spirit of God sustaining them because it's hard work. I tell every one of our church planters, this is the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life. Hardest ministry you'll ever do in your life. 
this, I've been this, right so far. This is not a new problem. Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers for his harvest. So the harvest has always been there. The prayer is not for the harvest. It's for workers for the harvest. So for our churches, even our churches that are 40 members or 30 members, why, why aren't we praying for workers in our church to go to the harvest? So uh, I think the church, historians say at the end of the first century was 10,000 people total. Why are we worried about small numbers? <laughs> right? A question over here. Last, last question. It's not really a question. I feel like when you say from a perspective of a parent, I have a 22-year-old, and he is a minister's son, and he calls himself an atheist and has since he was 16. I will do anything for him. I love him. It may not be what I'm used to, but if it will bring him anywhere closer to belief, then I can make that happen. And that's what I hear you say. And you're saying, we love people first. We don't ask them to jump through rings first, right? My son has just started coming to church again. Praise the Lord. And, you know, it's years and years of praying, but it was also years and years of me letting go and saying, I love you just the way you are right now in your unbelief. We have to love people. Right now, mm -hmm. just in a messy, whatever state you're in, right? And if you don't have that love to begin with, it doesn't matter what you try to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It does not matter. But we've got to love people like Jesus did. And go, okay, maybe I need to do something different. And the church said, uh, Are we done? I didn't mean that to be the end. <laughs> I just like, okay, amen. Yeah. Well, can, can we just pray as we end? Sure. Um, Father God, we do believe in your kingdom. Amen. Thank you. And we pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. We look forward to the day when the separation between what we know now and what we believe will be removed. And we will see face to face. But in the meantime, God, we pray that we would have the courage to act as if um, you are at work. You have not abandoned us. And quite the opposite, God, you, you have gone ahead of us. <laughs> you have uh, called us to follow you. And so we, we simply have to go where you are. Maybe we're feeling abandoned because we haven't followed you. And so, God, we pray that we would have the courage as church leaders and as leading Christians to follow you into your mission. Yes, and that as we go, we might once again be filled with the hope and the belief that we have something valuable for a world that is in dire need of your redemption. Amen. We thank you, God, for your love and your mercy poured out to us. And we pray that it will be poured out through us to people around us. Through Christ we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.